This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever wish that you had more time in your day? What would you do with an extra hour all to yourself? Would you go for a run? Take a nap? Read a book? The possibilities are endless. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, deal with overthinking, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash heartwisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash heartwisdom. A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. So please let yourself sit in a way that's comfortable and at ease. And for tonight, let yourself listen Kind of like a meditation practice. It's not um, a lecture where you have to take notes and there's no quiz at the end or anything like that. It's more listening to see if something resonates as true for you um, and reminds your heart and your spirit of something that you already know that's important and deep and valuable. And the rest of it you can just let go by. Very happy to be able to sit together. It's a, what's the right word? <laughs> I was going to say it's a bit of a disaster out there in certain, <laughs> certain ways with our news. Um, <laughs> um, and problematic. But to be able to come to sit together in the midst of the changes in the world, many of which are rather dramatic, um, to quiet the mind and tend the heart so that we can hold it in a wise way and hopefully respond in a wise way and be together in that spirit of wisdom and compassion is really important. And, and if we look, um, there are things that remind us or waken us out of our separateness, out of our kind of checking off our to-do list and feeling like we're 
separate from the rest of the world, um, that awaken us, remind us to to love. Remember what it was like when you were in love? I know almost all of you can remember that. It's pretty sweet, isn't it? And it's possible actually to be in love with the world, with people, with this place that we get, this mysterious, marvelous human realm, um, with its unbearable beauty and its ocean of tears, that you can love this. Um, And to step out of that sense of isolation and separateness, what's sometimes called the small sense of self or the body of fear, we get reminded of it in all different ways, sometimes walking in the high mountains or listening to an amazing piece of music or making love or sitting at the bedside of someone who's dying and the gates between the worlds open and you go, oh yeah, this is also going to happen to me too. Isn't this mysterious that we have a certain life for a certain time? Or being there for the birth of a child. I mean, that's so wild. Here's another human being, you know. Where do they come from? Come on. That's wild. And another way that we wake up, and it's beautiful just to recognize that we can kind of wake up from the trance that we move in, is through, sometimes through spiritual teachings or teachers of different kinds, um, who remind us of our own beauty, of our own Buddha nature, of our own fundamental goodness. And somehow we are supported, even as we come here to Spirit Rock, we're supported by a stream of thousands of years of people who also treasured awakening and compassion and a connection with all life and respect and so forth. And I know when I did, for a time I did a Tibetan practice where you do all these um, full prostrations and you visualize a tree of benefactors which have your teachers and the people who've blessed you and you sort of populate the tree with everybody who's ever been a teacher or 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 a guide, or a mentor, or been somehow a benefactor. And I started filling my tree up. It became like a Christmas tree, and that one, and that one, and that one. Um, And then I would bow and say, thank you. Because we're not here alone, you know. You're here with your ancestors. And we're here with the ancestors of this land, of the Miwok, who, who, who lived and tended this land. And we're here with thousands of generations um, so tonight, because it's the this week is a hundred years since my teacher Ajahn Chah was born, his hundredth birthday, um, and I can still hear his voice, which is a kind of fantastic thing, you know? Don't you know that experience when someone that you cared about a lot has died, and then there are moments when you can still hear just what they sound like and what they'd say? So I feel very blessed by that. Um, I want to talk about the the stream of teachings that have come to Spirit Rock in some ways that I received and so many other people received from this this wonderful teacher. And um, a few weeks ago, Ajahn Pasano, who runs a, a, a Bayagiri monastery in Mendocino, came and did a whole day on the 100th birthday teachings of Ajahn Chah. And my other dear friends, Ajahn Sumedho and Ajahn Amaro and Aya Ananda Bodhi, all these beautiful monastics who still carry his spirit, Um, are also part of our community. Um, I first met Ajahn Chah, teacher, when he was 49 years old, and I was 
who was in 1967. And he's a very plain-spoken person. His main language was, uh, was the Lao language from Laos, um, which I fortunately had learned because I was on these medical village kind of tropical medicine teams on the border of Laos and Thailand for a couple of years in the Peace Corps. Um, and I always thought of him, there he is in this picture here, smiling. And, and I sort of used to think of him as kind of like a frog because he had this giant mouth that could turn down and then he would get animated and it would turn up and this huge laughter would come out of him. And when I was first there, there were 45 monks and a, you know, a couple of dozen nuns. When he died, which was, uh, let's see, 30 years later, um, a million people went to his funeral, including the king and queen of Thailand. He became this really revered fountain of wisdom in, in that culture. And he lived, he was part of the tradition of forest monks, those who live in the jungles and the forests. And he had his little bag of roots and herbs and herbal medicine, and he'd lived in uh, caves and out with the tigers. And um, it was kind of remarkable in the, in the years that I was there to be able to go and live in these somewhat remote forest monastery. Um, but I realized that before I talk a bit more about him, I want to let him introduce himself to you. So there is a, a just a six-minute clip from a BBC documentary called The Mindful Way that was shot in the 1970s that um, if we turn the lights off and turn the video on, um, you'll get to get a little taste of it. Can we have the spots? Perfect. These monks in northeast Thailand are on Bindabat, the daily dawn walk to receive their food offered by the villagers. Not all monks in Thailand keep strictly to the discipline prescribed by the Buddha, but these monks strive to maintain the original forest tradition of a pure and simple life. allowed to possess money nor grow their own food. This ensures their total dependence on the lay community, so they can't cut themselves off in a spiritual cocoon. The abbot, the venerable Ajahn Chah, has been in robes for 50 years. Here in the forest, you can learn to be in harmony with the way things are in nature. You can live happily and peacefully. Buddhist monks don't practice meditation for selfish reasons. We practice in order to know ourselves, so that then we'll be able to understand and teach others how to live peacefully and wisely. This monk has been ordained for 15 years. He's respected not only for his skill in meditation, but also for his practical skills, his consistent mindfulness.
meditation doesn't just involve being at peace with the world. Confronting the self can be like walking into a raging storm. It's quite usual at first to despair, even to want to kill oneself. Some people think that a monk's life is a lazy and an easy one. If that's what they think, they should just try and see how long they can stand it. A monk's work is hard. He works to free his heart so that he begins to feel loving kindness, which embraces everything. He sees that all life has the characteristic of the breath. It rises and it falls. Everything that is born expires. So his suffering diminishes as he knows that nothing belongs to him. To help people contemplate the true nature of the body, we have human skeletons in the assembly hall. Because when one doesn't understand death, life is very confusing. Buddha made a distinction between ultimate truth and conventional truth. The idea of a self is merely a convention. Foreigner, Thai, you, the interviewer, these are all conventions. In ultimate reality, there isn't anybody. There is only earth, fire, water, air, elements which have combined temporarily. We call the body a person, mine, but ultimately there is no me. There is only anatta, not self. <laughs> when we see beyond self, we no longer cling to happiness, and when we stop clinging, we can begin to be happy. Shouldn't be concerned with nirvana or attaining nirvana. If you are, then that in itself will prevent you from gaining nirvana. So what should a monk's main concern be? The aim is to let go. So you have to let go, but without striving to let go. That's right. You should let go without without desire. If there's still desire in the pursuit to do that, then that's not nirvana. Be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of rare animals will come to drink at the pool. You will see many wonderful and strange things come and go. 
but you will be still. Problems will arise, but you will see through them immediately. This is the happiness of the Buddha. I think Achan Chao would have been laughing at that voice recognition that was trying to make language translations from Thai and Lao into some really wild stuff. I mean, Siri does that all the time, you know, but she was really in good form tonight. But you get a sense in seeing him of both the delight that he had and the wisdom and the honesty and so forth. Um, when he first came to the U.S., uh, we picked him up at the Boston airport and drove him along Memorial Drive in Boston. Okay, this is MIT and this is Harvard. We went through Harvard Square and so forth. Nah, he was okay. And then we got on the Massachusetts Turnpike to go out to our center in central Massachusetts in Barrie in the hills. And we got a little ways outside of Boston, outside the big ring road. And then, of course, it turned into more agricultural land, lots of trees and so forth, which you see across New England. So we're driving along, and he said, what's this? I said, what do you mean? He said, all these trees. And I said, they're trees. You know? <laughs> he said, pull over. So we pulled over. He got out of the car and walked up to the fence, and there was a, one of those New England forests. And he was smelling the air. And he said, forest, what, what kind of animals live here? Are there bears or there lions? You know, he just loved the forest. And I thought, okay, you know, this is what, there, there used to be bears. There are occasionally, but mostly it's deer and this and that. Well, well, how far do these forests go? Said, well, probably from here north through Canada, maybe a thousand miles. He said, oh, forest monks, great. You know, the right place for us. See, his vision of the U.S., when he was a boy, he'd seen some cowboy movies, so he'd seen sort of the western kind of desert with people on horses, and then he'd seen movies about New York City. He had no idea that we actually had forests here. He was completely delighted. Um, and he and his colleague, um, another great master, Ajahn Buddhadasa, when we talked about the hard time that people have in the West meditating and caring for themselves, loving themselves, how much self-hatred and self-judgment there is, said, bring them out to the forests. Let them spend time in, with the trees and the rhythm of the moon and the sun and the stars and teach them practices of loving kindness and compassion. And that will soothe their hearts and get them sane again. Something like that was his answer. So I had gone to find a master when I was quite young. Um, after graduating from college, I asked the Peace Corps to send me to a Buddhist country because I knew I needed something to help me with, um, with the kind of inner struggles that young people have, but I had a lot of. Um, and my family was difficult. Uh, my father was a violent, um, abusive person. And last week I was in Los Angeles with my beloved, with Trudy, and we went um, as volunteers to a shelter for battered women. We went with uh, Amy Wakeland, who's the wife of, the, of um, Eric Garcetti, the mayor of uh, Los Angeles, who 
supports a number of really great projects, and we were really interested in her Trudy Center and sending people, mindfulness teachers and compassion teachers, to places like this. And I found it so poignant to be there. First of all, it was a secret place. They wouldn't tell us where it was. They had to van us there because they didn't want anybody to know the address to protect the women who were there. And all of a sudden, I started to get all these memories from my past of my mother hiding bottles behind the curtains so she would have a weapon to defend herself in certain rooms or not going out in public except for long sleeves because of all the black and blue in her body and the kind of terror that I received from my father. Um, and it was the 1950s and there weren't places like this. She had four kids and she kept saying I should leave him, um, but she didn't. So it was a very, it was a very painful and kind of poignant place to be and to meet women who were being cared for and held and taken in in some way that I wished my mother could have experienced and that we could have too. Um, I guess I have to say it, I heard on the radio today that our Attorney General has now declared that even if you are the victim of a horrific, horrific violence of this kind, you're not eligible for asylum in the U.S., which kind of breaks my heart. Um, and makes me want to actually do something politically. That's another story that's important. Anyway, when you go into Ajahn Chah's monastery, it was entering a place of peace. It felt so peaceful in this forest. It's kind of the way Spirit Rock has become for many people, especially those who've taken a series of classes or done a residential retreat. And people will come in with the stress in their life, you know, and the, their financial problems or the things they have to take care of or stuff going on with their body or their confusion or their dreams or their creativity, how do I live, or in the middle of a divorce or all the things that make up our modern human life. And I love watching their faces, especially people who go on retreat, because they come in haggard a bit. And they leave with what we call the Vipassana facelift, you know. <laughs> their eyes are brighter, their faces, they look like five or ten years younger. We could sell this in Hollywood, I know we could, you know. And they're paying attention to the movement of the clouds and to the flowers that are blooming around the dining hall. It's almost like they get their, their spirit and their life back in some way. It's a beautiful thing. So the same kind of experience was what it was like to walk into his forest monastery. Fortunately, we have it here. We have it in this beautiful valley. Um, there was the jungle, and then you'd enter, and there'd be these long paths that were swept clean every day. It was part of our job as the monks and nuns with these long bamboo brooms. And it didn't matter if you swept the path absolutely clean. And by the time you got to that end, the leaves were already falling on the other end. The point was somehow to do it with graciousness and beauty and to make the, the sweeping a part of the rhythm of life there as well. So you'd come in and you'd see people who were dignified. There was a kind of impeccability and terrific care for discipline. And somehow they made the inner beauty uh, mirrored by the outer beauty. There was some way in which um, they made that inner beauty and peace visible 
through the way they cared for the forests and the paths and their robes and so forth. And then there were little signs as you came in, like, you there, be quiet, we're trying to meditate, you know, this is not the city. Or, um, uh, hey there, uh, life is short. Um, what matters to you? Come on, get on with it. Things little, little nudgy type signs, you know, Dharma signs. Um, And the idea was somehow to create, as we have in this valley, a place that reminds us of another way to be. And of course, we were near the border of um, Cambodia and Laos. So when I was there, both on those tropical medicine teams and then in monastery, um, was the time of the American Vietnam Cambodian Laos War, Southeast Asian War. And there was a big air base not far from there. So we would see fighter jets and bombers and so forth um, relatively frequently. And I remember these friends that came who were in the IVF, the International Volunteer Force, which was the equivalent of the Peace Corps, but I believe it was actually run by the CIA, um, in Vietnam and Laos. They weren't safe enough for Peace Corps, so the CIA said, oh yeah, that's great, we'll, we'll work with those people. Anyway, um, that's to another whole story. Um, but they came in and they were upset with me. We were old friends. What are you doing sitting on your butt when there's a war going on, when there are people who are um, in danger, uh, when, um, if you've ever been around a war zone, when unthinkable cruel things happen and, you know, suffering is enormous, why don't you get, come back out and, you know, and join the, join the fight? in some way. Um, and what happened after they stayed in the monastery for about a week is they began to realize that it was a zone of peace. And they talked to Ajahn Chah about it. And he said, you know, for those of us who live as monks in this thousand, thousand year old tradition, wars come and go and leaders come and go. And our task is to create a place of sanity that reminds people, even when there's great difficulty, that there is another way. Because if you were around the war zone, you also had to be careful because your life would be in danger, your things would be stolen, people were desperate. In the monastery, you could lose your gold earring or your you know, wallet, and somebody would pick it up and take it and put it on the altar until you came back. It was a place of such integrity and so much care it was like an island of sanity. And then Ajahn Chah said, you know, we human beings are constantly in combat at war to escape the fact of being so limited, limited by so many circumstances we cannot control. But instead of escaping, we continue to create suffering, waging war with evil, waging war with good, waging war with what is too small, waging war with what is too big, waging war with what is too short or too long, right or wrong, courageously carrying on the battle. Why not stop the war? Why not step out of the battle and come to a place of peace? And so it was really a, a, a visionary place in that way. And maybe another night I'll tell a story about being in a remarkable monastery of a sim similar kind in the Mekong Delta in the middle of the war in Vietnam. Um, 
that was also a zone of peace where those who were trying to run from the bombings and, and firefights and so um, could come and find refuge. Um, what Ajahn Chah talked about and my other teachers as well said it's not just that we have to do away with landmines and bombing, um, but we have to do away with the landmines in the human heart. We have to do away with the, the violence in the human heart. And here we live in a society where there's racism and, you know, environmental destruction and uh, continuing warfare and so forth. And where does it come from? It comes from us, human beings. It comes from our own minds and hearts. And some of us have to stop and have to find a different way and become that and model that. So this is a reminder, an invitation, and you could hear the last part of that video, even with all the funny language underneath, um, talking about the still forest pool, to let things take their natural course and let your heart and mind become uh, still in any surroundings like a clear forest pool to see all the wonders of the world, the amazing things. Mary Oliver's line, I was a bride married to amazement. And for Ajahn Chah, um, there's this new biography that was just published by a friend who was a monk, you know, this is a thousand pages or something. It's full of great stories because I was there, so I'm loving reading it. Um, uh, but it tells in part about his own practice um, which wasn't easy in his early years. He lived out in jungles. There were tigers, and he lived in the caves, and tremendous physical pain, and um, all the kinds of struggles that one might have as a renunciate in a very um, poor area, um, part of the time anyway. Um, in the dry season, it, there was not a great deal to eat in those villages, um, and sort of struggling somehow to find a place of unshakable peace in himself. Um, and when we came in the monastery, his instructions um, were actually quite simple and not very different than what we did tonight. He said, he called it taking the one seat. He said, just go into the room and put one chair in the center. Take the one seat in the center of the room, open the doors and windows, and see who comes to visit. You will witness all kinds of scenes and actors, all kinds of temptations and stories, everything imaginable. Your only job is to stay in your seat. You'll see it all arise and pass, and out of this wisdom, deep compassion and understanding will arise. So I like to use the word loving awareness as a synonym for mindfulness. And for Ajahn Chah, meditation wasn't about gaining some special state, but it was taking the one seat in the middle of it all, stopping the war against the way things are, and instead quieting the mind, bringing this spirit of loving awareness here, letting things settle, and then noticing when you get entangled, when you get caught, when you get afraid and reactive, and discovering 
that it's possible to see that with loving awareness and not get so caught, to find a kind of inner freedom. And somebody asked him at one point, what is the Dharma, which is a word that means truth, it means the teachings, it's kind of a complicated set of different meanings. And he said, the Dharma is the heart. That if you want to practice the Dharma or learn the Dharma, learn the truth, learn the way, just look into the heart. What spirit, what heart are you using to guide your life, to move through this world? And why not quiet yourself and listen in a way so that you're in touch with your heart rather than all the kind of things that people around you want to do? Um, Or he'd say, what's the state of your heart today? Um, And he was very interested in human suffering. Anybody here um, have that? No, don't bother. Don't bother. But his interest was not just in suffering. He would say, that's not the end of the story. There's suffering, there's its causes, and there's its end. Life has pain. Everybody knows that. There's pleasure and pain and gain and loss and fame and disrepute and joy and sorrow and... and, uh, Praise and blame, and hot and cold. This is what's what makes up life in some way. But suffering is different. Suffering is all our reactions and responses and entanglements in it. Um, and he wanted us to shift from the creation of suffering to the freedom of heart. My teacher Nisargadot used to say, the mind creates suffering. The mind creates the abyss. And the heart crosses it. And he wanted us to really listen from the heart. So, you know, um, I remember being there and there was a big festival at the closest village to the forest monastery. Usually it was very quiet, but they had giant loudspeakers and all kinds of music and so forth and village fair. And one of the monks came and complained, it's not quiet, right? Hajin Chah laughed. He said, there's the noise, but I have a question. Who's bothering who? You know, the noise isn't doing anything. What is your relationship to it? Who's bothering who? You know, he would tootle around the monastery at different points. And if you looked like you were having a hard time, he'd kind of gaze at you and say, hmm, um, you suffering today? And if you said no, he said, wonderful, enjoy the day. And if you said yes, he'd say, hmm, must be quite attached. And then he'd sort of tootle off. And that was it, you know. That was how simple it was. It wasn't very complicated. He wanted us to see how we got entangled and where the roots were, which were in our own lives. I remember one Western monk, English monk, Aranyapo, he's kind of famous for this story because he was never satisfied. He went to a remote forest monastery, but it was too quiet and there wasn't any good teachings. So Ajahn Chah sent him to a monastery near Bangkok where there was this famous teacher, but it was too noisy. Then he went to a monastery on the Cambodian border, but it was too, it was too poor. And he just always couldn't find the satisfactory thing. Finally, he came back. We were all, everyone sitting around with Ajahn Chah. They were all, and he was asking about that, you know, where to go next to find the right thing. And he said, you know, this poor monk, he put his monk's bag, we have these little monk's bags, he must have put it down in dog shit, you know, and everywhere he goes, it smells bad. 
As I said, he was very plain spoken, but you get the message, right? When I was sitting in meditation, um, trying to be very peaceful, yeah, Mr. Peace, right? Um, all this anger came up. It really shocked me because I was not going to be like my father, a violent, angry person, right? So where did that anger go? All suppressed in there. And then I'm sitting, as it said, the little raging storm comment, you might have noted in that. And all this stuff starts to come up. And I went to see him, you know, because some monk in a nearby hut had done something, and it's just a small thing. And I just got enraged, at it, and I knew it had nothing to do with that monk. I was at least that savvy. Uh, and I said, all this anger is coming up. What should I do? And he smiled, and he said, oh, good. You get to know, learn about anger. It's the hot season. Go in your hut, little tin roof hut. Right? Close the one window and the door. Wrap yourself all in all your robes and cook. He said, <laughs> if you're going to be angry, do it right. Sit in the middle of it and name it anger or fire, so you're not so damn afraid of it, you know? So his, his direction, he had this faith that if we could turn toward our deepest experiences, the deep experiences of love and care and connection, and the things that we also fear, our anxiety and anger and all of those things, if we could actually sit in their presence, there would grow a shift of identity which is the great gift of meditation from the contents, here's anger and here's fear and so forth, to loving awareness itself that would say, oh, this is the angry mind. This is how the angry mind works. This is the heart that's been, mostly anger comes because we've been hurt or we've been frightened or there's something we're really, you know, we've been in some way um, abused or mistreated or something like that. And he said, these things are natural. You have to learn to be in the presence of all the energies of nature, the wild energies and the peaceful and beautiful ones. Desire comes, he said. Make your loving awareness like a parent taking a kid to the store. And you know by the checkout, there's all the candy, right? And it's a child level. I don't know. There's something done about it. I don't know. We won't talk about that. But anyway, you know. And he said... The idea from the parent isn't to, you know, hit the child or something like that. You just see that they're a kid and they want everything. And it's part of that. And desire is natural. There's healthy desire and unhealthy desire. It's not until you become the loving awareness that you have a choice to decide which are the ones that you want to give to this child or which are the things that are healthy for you and which are not. And there was some way in which, you know... He, he just made it kind of our common humanity. Um, we'd be sitting around with him, and he'd say he'd introduce his monks to people. Visitors. Some of my monks are really big eaters like me. Ajahn Chah was a little bit overweight, he would say sometimes of himself. And they're all like me. You know, we do that. And some of my monks are just big sleepers. You know, they eat and then they sleep. And then I've got some that all they want to do is meditate. I think they're afraid of relating, basically, <laughs> you know. And I remember we brought a group. I brought some friends, Joseph Goldstein, Mark Epstein, a whole bunch of um, some people who are now Dharma teachers, and Ramdas to visit Ajahn Chah in his monastery in the 70s. And we're all sitting around. And Ramdas about 15 years older, so we were still 
maybe around 30 years old, and Ramdas was like 45 or something, with a beard coming from India. And the first thing he peered around the group, okay, who'd you bring? He said, hey, who's the old man you brought with you? And he just right on Ramdas's case, right, immediately. Um, but he also could be so tender. We went to the largest Trappist monastery in northern part of uh, in New England anyway, called Spencer Abbey. It's one of the main Trappist monasteries like Thomas Merton's Gethsemane Abbey. And, uh, uh, and um, when Ajahn Chah was there, we went to visit because those monks who lived some a few towns over had become friends and some of them would come and sit at our retreat center in Barrie. And the, the abbot, Father Thomas Keating, was a gracious and very wise, beautiful man who's become a kind of famous Christian um, contemplative. Um, so we took Ajahn Chah over there and about a hundred of their monks in their black and white outfits that remind me of penguins, but they're <laughs> elegant penguins, I have to say, really, were there in the courtyard and then there were these monks in their, you know, dusty orange robes like you saw in sort of a different costume or whatever. Um, and so all the monks were out and, and Thomas Keating is this very tall guy, and Ajahn Chah is quite short, and a little bit round, and they're, they're standing next to each other. And, and I introduce them, and Ajahn Chah sizes him up very quickly, as, as he used to, he just peered at people. And then he said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And Thomas Keating said, why is he saying, I'm so sorry? I says, it's kind of a strange greeting, right? I'm so sorry. And then he turned around and looked at all the hundred monks who were there, and he said, you know, being an abbot is a really, really hard job, and you should love and support this man. He's really doing you a favor to take this role. And Keating's eyes lit up, and this huge smile came across his face. Yes, somebody understands. <laughs> so he was very tender at times, um, and his interest was to shift from confusion and difficulty and fear, all those things that we have and know, to find peace in your own heart, to find well-being. So when he was teaching at IMS, at our monastery, at our, not our monastery, but our retreat center in Massachusetts, I remember we were out wandering, taking a walk out on the great big grassy lawn in front, and people were out doing their walking meditation. And he turned to me, he said, you know, this place looks like a big hospital. You know, it wasn't the forest. It was big brick buildings, New England style. And then he started to walk up to people as they were doing their walking meditation. He'd smile and he'd say, I hope you get well soon. I hope you get... <laughs> but he didn't set it up as some kind of ideal. He said when he was a young abbot and he was trying to get it all right and everybody should behave in the right way and they, they would never do exactly what he wanted. You know how people are, right? So he said, all right, I've figured it out now. And he had all the monks come in and lie down and line up with their feet on, the, on a certain line in the, in the meditation hall. So they were all very even. And he said, that's really great, except for one thing, your heads aren't even. So then he had them slide down until their heads were all in a line. And he said, that's really great except for one thing. Your feet aren't even. You know, finally he said, okay, stand up. This is who we are. We're short and tall, you know, we're, 
and this is the way that it is. We have to live with each other the way that we are and not the way that we would imagine that we're supposed to be. Um, it wasn't idealistic when we were invited to go to a monastery in, on the border of Cambodia. Um, the driver who was taking us, we were in a pickup truck, um, was a young guy who drove really fast, as certain young men like to do, um, some of whom I've known quite intimately, but then I'll leave that aside. Um, anyway, and um, it was a one-lane dirt road through the mountains, maybe one and a half lanes, so two cars could pass if they went slowly. And mostly it was pretty empty in those days, but once in a while there would be a logging truck or a bus that would come around the curve. Um, and this guy was just careening around the corners. You couldn't really see. And I'm holding on like, okay, I'm going to die a monk. I guess this is it. Start to breathe and center myself, get ready for my death. And then I look over at Ajahn Chah, and his, his knuckles are white too. And somehow that gave me some relief. Okay, <laughs> no, so we're in it together. Finally, we, we asked him to slow down. He wouldn't listen. He didn't slow down, or not very much. But we made it. We pull into the courtyard of the Cambodian monastery. And he looks over at me and he smiles and he said, scary ride, wasn't it? You know, and it was beautiful. It wasn't like I'm going to pretend that there isn't fear. It was like going to Disneyland and riding the big, you know, roller coaster. Um, it was just fear. Fear is what the body does at some points. Scary ride. And I know that he wasn't afraid of dying. In many ways, he showed that. He was just saying, these are emotions that they come. It's totally fine to see the way things are and that you have the capacity, your loving awareness, to be present for this life and know that you are bigger than all of that. I remember when I was very sick, I had malaria, I guess, and I was really wretched and lying on the floor in my little hut on my robes, and he came to visit, and he looked at me, and again, the language is very simple, so he said, um, sick, huh? I said, yes. He said, uh, Fever and pain, huh? I said, lots of it. He said, yeah. Makes you want to go home to your mother, doesn't it? I said, yes. <laughs> he said, well, this is suffering. This is suffering. Most of us as monks have had this a number of times. Now there's good medicine. I'll send the medicine monk over to help you. But you know, you can do this. This is just malaria. We know how to do this. You know, and he just stood. And I could feel that he'd been there through it all, and he was saying, yeah, yeah, we know how to do this. It's tough, but it's okay. It wasn't some ideal. It was that we know how to be wise. We know how to be compassionate and loving in the midst of it all, you know. And so these are the kind of trainings that he would give to people who came. And he, this is, um, at one point, somebody asked him, um, after I left, I was the second Westerner to be with him. There was a monk named Ajahn Sumedho, who's the one that told me about Ajahn Chah and had been there for a few years before me, who became a, an abbot himself and a very wonderful teacher. Anyway, um, after a few years, as the word got out that this was a great master, um, Western European and North American students and Japanese people from around the world started to come. 
And one visitor started to see these different foreign monks come and asked him whether he spoke English or French or German or Japanese. In every case, he replied, no, he couldn't. And then the questioner looked confused. How did the foreign monks learn anything then? And here was, he answered um, with a question. He said, do you keep animals at home? Have you got any cats or dogs? Any oxen or buffalo? Yes. Well, can you speak cat language? Do you speak dog? Can you speak buffalo? No. Then how do they know what you want them to do? So this was his first reply. And then he summarized, it's not that difficult. Training the Westerners is like training water buffalo. You just keep tugging on the rope and soon they catch on. <laughs> but he could be so tender, like, you know, a farmer would die, who, a farmer would come whose child had died, you know, and he would hold him and put his head in his lap you know, and, and just be so compassionate. And then the next day, some huffed up, you know, corrupt official from Bangkok would arrive with all his medals and things like that. Ajahn Chah would take out his false teeth. So he looked kind of gummy like that and give some lecture about karma and uh, corruption and... Uh, you know, dishonesty and where I was going to lead. <laughs> but underneath it all, you know, the form of the monastery, there was tremendous care and the rules were kept, the virtue and the vinaya and so forth. It was like the form of a beautiful poem. If you write a sonnet, you have the certain meter and a certain number of lines that you do but within that you can make great beauty. So there were these outer forms that we did, but inside there was a tremendous sense of freedom. And he could laugh at almost anything and see where you were holding on. And there was a, a woman who became a Westerner who became a nun at the, at the monastery that was built about hmm, eight miles away or so in a village. There were so many Westerners that Ajahn Chah said, why don't we make a monastery where the teachings are in English. Sumedho, this American monk, to be the abbot. And the villagers built this beautiful little monastery. There was 20 or 30 Westerners. And the, this, this nun who was quite eloquent and learned the language and so forth became one of their favorites. And after about five years, she left. People were disappointed. And a year later, she came back. And she had... Um, gotten another kind of religion. She'd become a born-again Christian and an evangelist at that. So she came back to the monastery, and now she was trying to tell everybody about Jesus. Okay. Um, and um, she was not terribly popular in the monastery for doing that, and not terribly popular with the villagers who had supported her, but she was still there doing it. Um, and they were really upset, and finally, in their upset, they walked over to Ajahn Chah's monastery, a um, whole group of villagers and some of the monks, and told the story of her coming back and trying to convert everybody and saying and Jesus was the way, and they were all upset and things like that. And he listened to it. He knew this was happening. You know, he heard, you know, the grapevine in the monastery is like any other grapevine. Um, he listened to it all, and 
you know, how could she do this? And, you know, we, we fed her and trusted her, and now she's come back. He listened for a while, and then he sat quietly. He said, well, you know, maybe she's right. And it just diffused it, you know? Everybody was on their horse about how it was supposed to be. And we need that wisdom now with all the political conflict as well. Maybe there's something that actually needs to be listened to from somebody who's different. Um, and it doesn't mean you can't respond. And it doesn't mean that there aren't things that we need to stand up for now. But how do we do it? And from what place do we do it out of aggression or out of fear and so forth? That just perpetuates it? Or can we stop the war and respond and say, this is something that is worth standing up for, that really matters. But to do it with the kind of courage like Gandhi would, to say, um, do what you will, I, I have to stand up for this. Because my love for you and everyone else, even those of you who are creating suffering, I love you too. And I love you so much that I don't want to let you continue to make this kind of suffering for others. It's a very different way of responding. So, Ajahn Chah, um, he taught a kind of fearlessness to be present for this human life, to tolerate it and to allow all the energies of life that as you meditate, you learn how to really be present. He also taught how to step back and see, as you saw in the video, that like the breath, it's all impermanent, that you can't grasp it. He said, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you really learn to let go, you can move anywhere freely. And that was part of his game. He went to visit Ajahn Man. Ajahn means a kind of acharya in, in Sanskrit, means a master or teacher, one of the other great forest masters. When he was still practicing as a monk in the forest, after about 10 years of living in caves and um, doing his meditation, and he'd had, along with the great struggles, when he finally was able to practice deeply, he had deep insights and visions and light and all the kind of meditation experiences one might have. So he went to see this great master, Ajahn Man, and bowed and paid his respect and said, I want to tell you about all my meditation practices and what I've seen and learned and kind of laid out all those experiences. Ajahn Man sat quietly, listened, and then looked up and he said, Cha, you've missed the point. Those are just experiences. They're like movies, he said. You go to the movies, and there's a romantic comedy, and there's a documentary, and there's a war movie, you know, and there's a, um, a historical drama, and so forth. And they appear on the screen and disappear. He said, these are the same. Luminous states, and rapture, and um, physical pain, and suffering, and, you know, insights and confusion, those are all states the only question that matters if you want to be free is to whom do they happen? Turn your attention from the changing experiences back to consciousness itself, to awareness, what we're calling loving awareness or consciousness, and become the witnessing, what in that language is called, become the one who knows, become the knowing. So you become loving awareness 
that is the witness to all of this, and joys and sorrows and praise and blame and gain and loss. And when you do, then the real freedom and real well-being and happiness that's not dependent, it's the happiness for no cause. It's the freedom that's not dependent on circumstances will start to mature and grow in your own heart. To stop the war with the world, to take the one seat in the middle of all things and then become the one who knows, become the Buddha, the, the awakened one, the loving awareness itself. I have this beautiful set of uh, poems that were sent to me um, recently that are translations from the earliest Buddhist nuns. Um, one morning after alms round, begging for my breakfast, looking down at one more meal I hadn't worked for, hadn't paid for, and hadn't earned, a life of debts I could never replay, repay, pushing in on all sides like the weight of the sea, I blinked. A tear fell into my bowl. Would it always feel like this? Just as the moon rises up from the bottom of the sea, a handful of rice lifted itself from the bottom of the, my, my bowl, and my heart rose with it and opened. I wish I could tell you how it tasted, that first bite of food as a free woman. And these are called the songs of enlightenment. Like there was a moment when in that moment, that taste, and all of a sudden all the things that she thought she should be and who she was dropped away and the vastness and mystery opened. It happens that that vastness and mystery is who you are. You are consciousness itself that was born into that body of yours. I mean, where do you think you came from? You're certainly not the physical body, right? As I say, you are not made of, you are not kale and Big Macs. It's just not who you are, right? Um, and you're not your emotions, I hope. I mean, they're nice at times and terrible at others. And I'm, you're certainly not your thoughts. First of all, they come and they disappear like that. Which one is you? Spirit, consciousness born into this body, will leave this body. You'll see. It's going to happen sometime. Whoa, wow, that was quite a trip, that life, wasn't it? You'll see. Anyway, you wait. I told you so, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, here you are in the middle in this mystery. You're in this mystery. What you are is consciousness, is spirit, having this human experience. And without understanding, you're like a boat without a rudder. When you come to the temple, as you have, or you go to that forest monastery, um, it's really a place of reminder that what you're seeking is who you are. And where you're going is here, because there's only now. You can imagine other things, but actually all you have is what's now. It's always now. This is where we're going. Ah, I don't know where that bird chirp came from, but thank you. I love it. Yeah. And so to remind you that amidst the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows, you have the perfect place to awaken. You don't have to go to some forest monastery, you know, in the jungles of Thailand or Burma. 
You don't have to go to the Himalayas. You don't have to live in some cave. You have all the perfect conditions for awakening in your very own life, in your own body and mind. And when you do, then you can really care for the world in a whole different way. So this last week, last weekend, um, I was teaching for Budafest in Los Angeles, which was a big festival of Buddhist teachers and films and arts and things like that. Um, but I was up here, I was un unable to be there in person. Um, and so I Skyped in to a dialogue with my beloved Trudy, my wife, who's a teacher inside LA, and with Ramdas. And there was, you know, hundreds of people there and thousands of people online, whatever, and we had about an hour-long conversation about awakening and loving awareness and what's possible for us because it's not in India and it's not in the jungles. It happens to be in your own heart. And so as we came toward the end of that, um, Ramdas told the story, one of, the, one of his favorite stories, which is how when he was in, in India, um, after some years with his guru, his guru was urging him to go back to the U.S. to teach and to offer these teachings. And Ramdas demurred and said, you know, I'm not ready. Um, I'm too neurotic. I'm too impure. I'm too imperfect. How could I offer the teachings of love, you know, that you have embodied so much? How could I do that? I just feel too imperfect. And his teacher got up off the little wooden bench where he sat and very slowly, taking a couple of minutes, walked around Ramdas and peered at him from his feet to his head, looked in his clothes, looked in the back, peered him all around and sat back down and gazed at him and said, I see no imperfections. And in India, it's called the glance of mercy. It's that love that happens when someone looks at you um, and sees the secret beauty that was born into you as a child that's inviolable, that no one can take away, and recognizes your beauty. So there we are around us is talking about all these kind of things, you know. And then a woman raises her hand in the question period at the end, and she says, you know, Ramdas, you had a guru. You went to India. Here I am, you know, in Los Angeles. Um, what can I do? And I said to her, I said, you know, you're a little bit like the person sitting by the river asking for water. I said, Ramdas, can you see her in the camera? I forget what her name was. It might have been Vivian or something. Like, can you see Vivian? Yeah. I said, do you have anything to say to her? And he just looked at her and he said, I love you. I love you completely, just the way you are, exactly as you are. And then he looked at all of me and said, I love you all, every one of you. He was gone on a roll. He was loving everything by the time it was done. You know? And you could see it and feel it in the group that it changed everybody just to have somebody gaze at them with that much love and say, yes, I love you and you are exactly, the universe has brought you here 
as you should be, and you are completely lovable and worthy of love. The Buddhist teachings begin with the phrase, O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, of the awakened ones, do not forget who you really are. Remember your fundamental dignity. Remember that you have the capacity for freedom, that within you is born the great heart of compassion. Trust it. Open to it. And then you can live with wisdom and bring your blessings to the world. So, in honor of Ajahn Chah, I pass along those teachings. Let's just sit for a moment and be quiet. You have the perfect conditions in your life for awakening the great heart of compassion. It is your birthright. O nobly born, remember who you really are. 